afternoon, everyone. I'm Patricia Duff, and very happy to welcome you all to The Common Good today. We have a lot to cover and a very important topic, so let's get right to the conversation. As you know, the U.S. first sent troops into Afghanistan in October 2001. That's 19 years ago, in retaliation for the horrific attack by al-Qaeda terrorists on U.S. soil that brought down the Twin Towers in New York and other sites that took almost 3,000 lives. The U.S. and its allies did succeed in driving the Taliban from power to deny al-Qaeda safe base of operations in Afghanistan, but despite many victories, many hard-fought battles, and losses, including tremendous expenditure of lives and treasure, 2,448 troops killed, 20,721 injured, many, many civilian casualties, and an estimated $2 trillion spent by the U.S. in these years for the war in Afghanistan, we are still puzzling over how to get out of this morass. To give us the overview and an update, we have two extremely knowledgeable guests who can take us through the Afghanistan landscape. We have Chris Kalenda. I can't possibly cover his impressive CV here, but he's a renowned combat leader and strategist, a retired colonel who led 800 paratroopers in one of the deadliest spots in Afghanistan. He went from fighting the Taliban in combat to becoming the Secretary of Defense's personal representative in talks with the Taliban. This engagement in unofficial talks with the Taliban is credited with leading to the current peace talk peace process that is happening right now, even as we speak. Oh, and by the way, he was featured in Jake Tapper's New York Times bestselling book, The Outpost, which became a major motion picture. Uh, we'll have to find out who plays him. Uh, welcome, Chris. We are honored to have you. And uh, I must first say, from on behalf of all of us at The Common Good, thank you for your service. And I'm honored, always honored, to have our host today, one of our nation's finest leaders who will guide and contribute substantially to our conversation, a great man and leader, Jay Johnson, former Secretary for Homeland Security, who played a critical role in our national security, including counterterrorism efforts there. He was general counsel for the Department of Defense, served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and has an awesome collection of campaign bumper stickers, among other achievements. Plus, he's a great friend of the common good. So thank you, Jay. Thank you both so much for being with the common good this afternoon. And now I am passing the mic to Jay Johnson. All right. Thank you, Patricia. Um, I am a big fan of the common good. I am a big fan of Patricia Duff. And I recommended to her that folks here have an opportunity to listen to and learn from retired Colonel Chris Kalenda. When I was in national security as general counsel of the Department of Defense and then Secretary of Homeland Security, I had an opportunity to meet some extraordinary Americans. Chris is one of my heroes. Chris is a West Point graduate, as you heard from Patricia, he has led soldiers in battle in Afghanistan. He led an 800 soldier unit in combat in Afghanistan. He helped frame our counterinsurgency approach to Afghanistan. He served on General McChrystal's staff uh, after serving in combat. He was, he's credited, though he won't say so himself, with helping to write the famous McChrystal assessment about the proper approach in Afghanistan. And after leading men in combat against the Taliban, he is the first American to have both led 
us in combat against the Taliban and then engaged in peace talks directly with Taliban leaders. That's how I met Chris. Uh, I was asked by the Secretary of Defense to work alongside Chris on reconciliation talks in Doha and Qatar uh, in the hope of, of, of beginning the peace process in the period 2011-2012, while I was still general counsel of the Department of Defense. At that point, uh, our efforts were, were not successful. Uh, Chris left the Army. He retired from federal service. Uh, he received a PhD. He's an incredibly thoughtful person. In addition to being a combat veteran, he now teaches leadership uh, at his own center. And uh, I'll never forget, I was um, in New York City with Chris. We were about to meet uh, uh, with some representatives of the Qatari government in the reconciliation talks. The Qataris were acting as middlemen and we were wandering around Columbus Circle and Chris said, wow, this reminds me of Afghanistan. And I said, wow, this guy needs to get out more. Um, but Chris is an extraordinary person. And in my experience, has perhaps the most clear-eyed vision of what to do about Afghanistan and how to solve what seems to be a, an endless conflict there. So um, I'm very, very excited about the opportunity to introduce him to the common good and all of you, and we'll start off with a few questions from myself. So, um, Chris, let me begin with this. Um, could you just give us a short synopsis of your experience in combat in Afghanistan? Um, Patricia pointed out that your experience there was one of the things that led to the book and then the movie Outpost, which you told me was probably uh, the best uh, movie depicting real combat that you've ever seen. But could you ju just give us some observations about what, what it was like to be in combat, leading men in combat in Afghanistan uh, and that whole experience? Um, thank, thank you, Mr. Secretary. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to be on here with you. I remember our trip to New York City and I will never forget visiting Ground Zero and you telling me about what you saw that day on September 11th, 2001, which also happens to be your birthday. And so that's a, you know, that trip to New York City together for those discussions was, uh, was something I will, I will never forget. And, and I thank you for that. I also wanted to give a, a quick shout out to, there's some of my former paratroopers who are on this show right now. So uh, David Roller in particular said, <laughs> you said that you would be on here. So I hope in fact that you are, and I look forward to getting your questions, but uh, it was such a, as without question, the, um, I guess, biggest honor of my life, the biggest challenge I've ever faced was, was leading these soldiers in combat. It was, yeah, that, that area of northern Kunar and eastern Nuristan, which was the right, right along the Pakistan border, was one of the deadliest places in the country in the summer of 2007. So as, as we were coming in, a big ambush occurred uh, with our predecessor unit in which 16 Afghan soldiers were killed. And, you know, there had been big fights before that. And 
what you saw there was a growing insurrection in that area. And that's what people like David Roller and all of our paratroopers walked into. Um, it's in a, in a place like Afghanistan, you, you, are, you are trying to sort out what is going on and why it's happening and try to be successful in your mission and at the same time take care of your take care of your soldiers with among a culture that is completely foreign you're half you were literally half the world away uh, with people who look differently think differently speak differently act differently pray differently than than just about every, you know all of, all of you and and at the same time, Afghans can be very, of course, any, or any people that have been in conflict for, at that point, 30 years. Afghans have been at war for 30 continuous years. You get very good at, at guarding information, um, at only revealing what you want, foreigners in this case, us, to, to know. And so it makes for a very, very challenging situation. And, and the tendency in, with, when you're dealing with that level of uncertainty and that level of, of complexity, and oh, by the way, it's very deadly, the tendency is to just go with what you know. And for us, in that case, it was big military operations. And one of the things that, that we learned very early on was, first of all, that 95% of the people that we thought we were helping were actually trying to kill us. And, and second, that we could run around with our hair on fire through the mountains of this particular area for 15 months. It was a 15-month tour. It was, it was right at the early part of the surge in 2007. We could run around the hair on fire for 15 months. Um, there would be a lot of valor wards. There would be more soldiers killed and wounded. Uh, at that point, in, within the first 90 days, we'd had four soldiers killed in action and, and scores wounded. Um, Jacob Lowell was killed on a, on a route reconnaissance patrol. He was shot in the leg and instead of seeking medical attention, Jacob Lowell got back up on his machine gun and continued firing until he was, um, until he was, he was killed. Tom Bostic was, uh, Jacob Lowell was awarded the Bronze Star with, uh, Valor, for Valor. Tom Bostic was leading his cavalry troop and David Roller and some others who are on this remember this very well were part of Tom's cavalry troop. Uh, was leading his troop in a very uh, difficult mission, July 27th of 2007, uh, when a insurgent force of probably four to five times their size um, ambushed them, uh, began attacking them. And, and Tom and B troop fought heroically for several hours and, and, and fended off that attack. And, and some of the people who were on this call were, were a critical part of that. that um, and, and then about 90 minutes later, the attack resumed again. And, and Jay, I, I can still hear the boom in my head as we're speaking. I can still hear the boom of the rocket propelled grenade um, that 
that killed Tom. Now, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but that's, that's exactly what it was. Tom, at that point, was, had put himself in the line of fire, so his command post, which had come under direct fire, could move to a more secure location. Uh, Tom was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which, as you know, is the second highest medal for valor. Uh, Ryan Fritchie was killed that same day, leading his squad in, in that very difficult mission. And, and Chris Pfeiffer was mortally wounded um, on August 25th of 2007. He was mortally wounded defending uh, in a defensive position on his outpost, Combat Outpost Keating, which, which the outpost is written about. Uh, Chris was shot um, due to the skill of our doctors uh, and our medics out there at Camp Keating. Chris was then aerovac to the main outpost, uh, which, is, uh, which is now called Fob Bostic after Tom. And I remember seeing Chris uh, as he was rolled into the, as he was moved from the helicopter into our local, into our hospital there. And Chris fighting for his life, he had, the bullet had nicked his liver and was, and so he's bleeding, the docs couldn't stop the bleeding. And Chris was gonna bleed out. And the doctors ran out of blood. And I will never forget seeing about 50 of our paratroopers, everybody who was O-type blood, lining up outside the hospital to give Chris blood. And the doctors were able to stabilize him. Uh, he then uh, was eventually transferred to, to San Antonio. Uh, and he died of wounds September 25th of 2007. And a day later, his daughter Peyton was born. Um, so that gives you I, maybe a little bit of a flavor of, you know, all of these soldiers died following my orders. And so you have this awesome sense of responsibility that every order you give is putting people in harm's way. And that's continuous over the course of 15 months. Uh, you've got people who, uh, like some on this call, who fought heroically, um, who withstood, when you look at the outpost, the movie, withstood that kind of contact from the enemy and took the fight to them every single time. And even, even more importantly, uh, when we started to figure out that, you know, look, everything we thought about this area was, was wrong, they were able to change how we were doing things almost 90 degrees. And instead of, we recognize it, we didn't need to run around with the hair on fire for 15 months uh, chasing bad guys through the mountains. What we needed to do was to, as we began to understand more and more, our top priority began to be building relationships, building relationships with people. Because ultimately, if you can go into somebody else's village or look at the world through somebody else's point of view and say, here's what I think your point of view is, and they can say back to you, you know, that's exactly right then you've got the foundation to begin building bridges and working on common solutions. And so that's exactly what our paratroopers did. You had 800 people doing, I mean, following this sort of strategy, this mental model. And the result of that was 
about nine months into it, the biggest insurgent group in the area stopped fighting and, and eventually joined the government. Um, when you see the outpost movie and you see at the beginning Afghans uh, turning in their AK-47s, turning in their weapons, and uh, calling the, the, uh, the character uh, Ben Keating, uh, who was played by Orlando Bloom, uh, when the Afghans say, you are a good guest, that was a direct reference to our, our time there because that's exactly what happened. Uh, those Afghans, in fact, who stopped fighting uh, and joined the government are, are still fighting the Taliban to this day. So I guess that was a long answer to your question, but it's a, you know, it runs the, what combat is like runs the gamut from that awesome sense of responsibility, the heartbreak when um, when people close to you are, are um, wounded or get killed, uh, calling, I'll never forget talking to Tom Bostick's wife and his mom. Uh, I called all of the parents and, and spouses of my soldiers who were killed. And the, you, you don't forget those conversations. You remember the adrenaline of being in firefights and um, the it almost becomes, it, addictive is the wrong term, uh, but, but you remember that adrenaline. And if you're not very careful, it becomes bloodlust. And that's when major problems happen. And then I also remember the joy of just working together with Afghans as we began building relationships with them and working together on common objectives. I mean, whenever I go to Afghanistan and they hear I'm in Kabul, these elders will take the 24 hour trip just to come say hello, even if it's only for 10 minutes. I mean, when you are a guest, when an Afghan considers you a guest, they put themselves, they are willing to put their lives on the line for your safety. And when they consider you a friend, which is even, even greater than, than being a guest, a guest, of course, uh, then, you know, they're friends for life. And I've got friends for life over there. I've got Afghans who put their lives on the line for me and for my paratroopers. And, you know, these are people I'll just never forget who are sacrificing day in and day out for the safety and well-being of their communities. And so it, it's all of those emotions and those examples um, and misunderstandings and attempt to re-understand and, and adjustments and ap adapting all of the <laughs> combat is all of those things and more. Chris, you've been called upon to do something few human beings have to do, which is to sit down with people who are responsible for killing your friends in combat to try to make peace with them uh personally and look them in the eye personally and, and talk peace with them how do you how do you get your head around that how do you how do you muster the 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 determination and the will to do that it, it we'll, took we'll, talk, we'll talk at a higher level about the solutions for afghanistan but i'm just curious to know that very basic human question it it actually it, it, it took a little while it took some relationship building um because yeah, when, when somebody close to you gets killed in combat, and I knew all four of these soldiers um, very well. I knew, and, and of course, because they're part of the unit and, and those wounded. And I tell you what, it is, 
when somebody close to you is, is killed or wounded, um, your blood goes up. Um, and, and, and all you want, if you're not very careful, it becomes bloodlust because you want payback. Um, you want to make sure that, that people who killed your friends are, um, get the same and then some. And so as a commander, I had to first recognize that, that everybody goes through that. And second, I had to set an example that said, look, we're not going to give into that. We are better than that. We are more disciplined than that. And we are going to fight with discipline. Um, and we're going to stay true to our values. And, and um, setting the example on that and having officers and not commissioned officers 100% bought in on that was, was absolutely critical to, to being successful. As, as we continued building the relationships and, and I, I believed, and you set a great example of going to Liberty University recently where you go, you don't just talk in your own echo chamber, you, you have to get out and you have to try to see the world from somebody else's point of view. And, and the more that we are able to do that and see ourselves from an Afghan point of view and see the situation from an Afghan point of view, um, I began to learn some remarkable things. So the first one is that the insurgent leader that we were fighting, uh, of, of the biggest group that we were fighting, was actually somebody who wanted Americans there in the first place. And I also learned that he had a blood feud with somebody who had gotten very close to US forces in the past. And that person who had a blood feud began providing false intelligence against this particular insurgent leader, who at the time was not an insurgent leader. So they're giving false intelligence that this guy is, he's uh, affiliated with Al Qaeda and other insurgent groups. And he got a couple of his buddies to say the same thing. And from a US standpoint, oh, that becomes actionable intelligence. People started paying this guy visits in the middle of the night. Uh, his wife was wounded in one of these attacks. There were civilian casualties. And this individual who had been a very prominent insurgent leader during the Afghan-Soviet war, defeating numbers of Afghan communist and Soviet incursions into that part of Nuristan, this person said to himself, saying, you know, I can either surrender or I can fight back. And, and, and he decided, like many people would, that they're going to fight back. Imagine a foreign army in your neighborhood coming to your home in the middle of the night, wounding your spouse, wounding your children. Um, I don't know about you, but it'd be like Red Dawn around here in Milwaukee. So, so he decided to fight back. And of course, he had 95% of the population with him. And as we began seeing more and more examples of this, it became pretty clear to me that these were people not fighting from some sort of ideology. They didn't want to destroy America. Uh, they don't hate women or anything like this. They, they're fighting because they think their, their way of life is under attack. Um, and if we could do things to build bridges to them to show that not, not only are we not interested in destroying their country and their religion and their families and their way of life, but actually what we're interested in is finding ways to work together on common objectives, <clears throat> then we can have a conversation. And, and the more we began making 
gestures in this direction um, and building these relationships with local Afghans who would then, of course, take this message, we would get these messages then reciprocated. And, and that led to a series of um, essentially the, the Afghans creating a local, creating a local, what they called the 100 Man Shura. And it began a series of agreements with all of these villages we were operating in, which, which said, hey, here's how we're going to work together. And, and so that led this particular insurgent leader and about a thousand of his closest friends to stop fighting. Now, that didn't mean that they were willing to join the Americans or join the Afghan government at that point, but that they were, that they, um, were willing to give this a go. And, and so uh, I, I learned through that prospect or through, the, you know, through all of those different conversations that um, you've, got to, you, you've got to suspend your own sort of biases and try to see the world from somebody else's point of view. And when you do that, solutions become possible. And, and I tried to take that very same approach in with the, you know, with the Taliban. So you mentioned being the Secretary of Defense's representative. I became a very strong advocate for peace talks in late 2009, early 2010, uh, when I recognized that the scale of corruption within Afghanistan was such that um, the Afghan government was not going to sort of win this a military victory against the Taliban. The Taliban enough internal support that they could sustain this fight forever. So a peace process was the only logical way to get an outcome that met U.S. interests and kept Afghanistan at, or gave Afghanistan the, uh, the opportunity to be, itself, to be at peace with itself and its neighbors and with um, you know, the international human rights respected. And, and so, um, and as we began talking with the Taliban, it's exactly the, the approach that I tried to take. I wasn't the main interlocutor in those points. I was uh, advising the State Department lead for those talks and doing my best to, to advise that person. Um, unfortunately, as you mentioned, those talks collapsed in 2012. And, and then was very fortunate to, in 2017, I was asked by a gentleman named Paolo Cataramasino, who um, I hope one day his name, people recognize the, what he has done to bring about this current peace process. Paolo had kept in touch with the Taliban's political representatives in Doha for many years. And in 2017, he thought that there might be an opportunity to try to create some sort of bridge between the Taliban and, and the U.S. government. And he had asked uh, Ambassador Robin Rafel and myself to, and me to accompany him to Doha to speak with the, with the political representatives of the Taliban there. And, and after a series of conversations, it became clear to us that they were serious about wanting a peace process. They didn't want their country to become another Syria. And, and those talks that Paolo helped create uh, were instrumental in leading to this current peace process. So let me take you to the 30,000 foot level and ask a very simple question that has probably a very complicated answer. What in your view, now that we've just recently embarked upon 
this new round of peace discussions directly with the Afghan government and the Taliban. What is the best way to, uh, what is the best outcome for U.S. interest? You know, uh, we all believe that the best outcome for U.S. interest is an Afghanistan that is never again allowed to become a safe haven for Al-Qaeda or any other terrorist organization that could launch an attack against the U.S. Okay, but from the U.S. perspective, what's the best outcome here and what's the best way to achieve it? Well, that's what you just identified was our core interest in Afghanistan, um, preventing Afghanistan from being another a platform again in which groups like Al-Qaeda can launch major 9-11 style terrorist attacks against the United States and, and our allies. So that's, that's, that's number one. That always has to be number one. We also have an interest in Afghanistan, of course, being at peace with itself and, and with its neighbors, because Afghanistan at peace with itself is less likely to harbor groups like Al-Qaeda, less likely to allow them to exist in Afghanistan, and then at peace with its neighbors. Afghanistan and Pakistan have, have had major conflicts since since Pakistan was created in 1947. Afghanistan was the only country not to recognize Pakistan as a country when it was created in 1947. And the conflict between those countries has been, has been ongoing. Afghanistan doesn't recognize the legitimacy of the international border. Back when Afghanistan was an empire, it included much of what is now Western Pakistan and Northwestern Pakistan. And so at peace with its neighbors is also an essential part of, of Afghanistan not becoming a platform for international terrorism. And then we also have a human rights, um, we have an interest in human rights in Afghanistan. Now, I believe human rights are, are, are worth fighting for. Um, Afghanistan has, I mean, Afghanistan remains today, even despite the gains that some Afghan women have made, Afghanistan remains today among the top two or three worst places in the world to be a woman. Now, part of that is due to the conflict. Um, part of that is due to a lot of you know, widespread um, misogyny among Afghan males and Afghan warlords. Uh, and you see this within the, in the Taliban as well. So we have an interest in in supporting an outcome that respects at least the International Declaration of Human Rights. We can't tell Afghans how to live their lives, but we can create incentives um, that, uh, that hopefully will move things along in, the, you know, in, a, in a positive direction. So what's frustrating to me is that our leverage to generate that kind of outcome was far higher in 2011 and 2012 when you had 100,000 International, actually 140 international thousand, 140,000 international soldiers on the ground, then fewer than 10,000 today. And in 2011, when the Taliban controlled virtually no territory in Afghanistan, to today when they control, depending on, on you know, which data points you read, anywhere between 40 and two, 40 percent and two thirds of the country. So. It's frustrating to me as a soldier, uh, as somebody who fought there, spent a lot of time there, as somebody who's now studied 
you know, how you bring wars to a successful conclusion. It's frustrating to me that we, in many ways, squandered that opportunity in 2011. And so it's going to be much harder to create the outcomes that we, that we find very important to us today, just because our leverage is, is so much less. So let me, let me float a proposition at you and invite you to agree or disagree with as much of it as you feel appropriate. Uh, here's the proposition. Historically, it is much easier to start a war than it is to end it. And whether you're talking about Afghanistan or Vietnam, we often start something that we find it very difficult to finish. We find ourselves bogged down with a force of 140,000 or a half a million uh, engaging in what is essentially nation building, but the insurgent force looks at us and says, guys, you've got the watches, but I've got the time. And inevitably, after years of protracted conflict and lives lost, we find ourselves withdrawing a situation that was not that much better than what it was when we first got in. And that's kind of the nature of, of warfare very often. What part of that do you disagree with? Uh, I don't disagree with any of it. Uh, in fact, it's almost a thesis of my book, Endgame. So University of Press of Kentucky is gonna publish this in, uh, next, next year. And that's in many ways exactly what happens in these in these conflicts, the United States has, as a government, we have no, no organized way of thinking about war termination. So how you bring wars to a successful conclusion other than surrender on the battleship Missouri, right? The end of World War II, we have this mental image that all wars must end in this decisive military victory, surrender on the battleship Missouri. And so we go into these interventions assuming that that's how things are gonna go. And, and it leads to three major errors. The, the first one is that, that we create these very military-centric strategies that have, have very low opportunities for being successful in these kind of conflicts. Second, we get stuck in these losing or ineffective strategies due to things that you, you know, we see all the time. Uh, cognitive bias, bureaucratic frictions and political frictions, relationship frictions with the host nation. And then eventually the, we pay penalties and public support along the way. And eventually the American people get tired of it. And the president says, we're done here. Uh, we are gonna start withdrawing and, and then begin seeking alternative outcomes. Let's see if we can negotiate. Let's see if we can hand the conflict off to the host nation government. But by that time, we have lost so much leverage that the insurgency is not willing to negotiate an end to the conflict because they believe their leverage is going to be higher when we go rather than when we're there. And the host nation, we don't have enough leverage to get the host nation government to reform itself um, right. so it can win the battle of legitimacy. I mean, Afghanistan is perennially at the top, in the top three most corrupt countries in the world, according to Transparency International, has been since 2007. And, and, so, and so we just get stuck. Um, so I, I agree exactly with what you 
with what you pointed out. And one of the things that we need to do better as a country is be more develop strategies that have, a, of course, have a greater chance of success up front. And some of those strategies are going to involve, all right, well, is, is our most likely outcome decisive military victory? Probably not in most of these kind of conflicts. Maybe it's a negotiated outcome. Maybe it's an outcome where we build the legitimacy, you know, help the host nation build its legitimacy. Um, and those strategies are very different. So we've got some major reform to do within our national security thinking and architecture. And it, it bothers me, quite frankly, that none of the presidential candidates during the, during the primaries or, or even right now, no presidential candidate is talking about national security reform. When we have had two major interventions that have turned into quagmires at the cost of thousands of American casualties, tens of thousands of Americans wounded, and even more on top of that with wounds that we cannot see, $3 trillion spent and not a single discussion from any of our candidates not about an agenda for national security reform. I find it appalling. When you look, Patricia mentioned earlier Afghan casualties. There's one study that came out from Sweden that said that the, in Afghanistan, there have been roughly 180,000 civilian casualties. Now that's in a country of about 30 million people. If you put that into a, if you translate that into a country of America's population, that's over 2 million Americans dead. Um, that's, I mean, that's kind of what Afghanistan's facing. Um, and, and so we, you know, we've got to do much better and it's possible for us to do much better but we can't do better if we don't recognize what the problem is and we're not very intentional about taking steps to, to address it. So when you're, when you're on the ground in Afghanistan as a combat commander trying to survive day to day, do you have the capacity to think in those strategic terms? Like, what am I doing here? All I'm doing is just not losing. Uh, or, or are you able to see the big picture once you you come back home and you retire from the army and you think about it for a while. It's, it's, uh, okay. when we would have these conversations, I don't know if David is, is still on the call. Uh, we would have these conversations or if he was able to make it, we would have these conversations at Outpost Keating. Um, and you know, they'd be, you know, what, are, what are we doing here? Why does this make sense? And, and it wouldn't be a long conversation, but, but we would have them because it's something in the, in the back of our minds. Um, I was convinced, always have been, that, that we have been fighting a just war in Afghanistan and that we have fought it justly. Um, hundreds of Taliban are, you know, I'm responsible for the deaths of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Taliban. I have never lost a wink of sleep about it. And it's not because I'm some sort of tough guy. It's because I know that we are fighting a just war for a just reason. Um, so we'd have those conversations. But for the most part, when you're, when you're in the thick of it, you're, you're thinking about how, you know, how, do we, how can we be successful in this area? What do I need to do? What do I need to learn? And I was learning things at the 15-month point. I'm just thinking, golly, I wish I had known that nine months ago. 
Um, because Afghanistan is such a fascinatingly complex place. As a senior advisor to Generals McChrystal and Petraeus and Dunford, I had a lot more time to think strategically about those things. Part of my job is to help think about, okay, well, how do we, how do we actually win this war? Or how do we get a successful outcome from this war? And, and then, of course, in the Pentagon, uh, with as a senior advisor to Michelle Flournoy, and also being the Secretary of Defense's representative in these talks. I mean, how we create a successful outcome in Afghanistan is like occupied all of my attention. Um, as, as I look at today, if I were to frame kind of where we are today, I think if, if you just drew a quad chart uh, where one, the east-west axis was um, no patience and lots of patience, and the north-south axis was you know, high level of US attention, uh, political capital, and the bottom was low levels of US attention and political capital. You get four sort of big outcomes. So if we're in a hurry and there is, and the US puts a lot of pressure to, to get to a deal in a hurry with the Taliban, I call that rush to failure. And so in rush to failure, we put all sorts of pressure on the Afghan government and on the Taliban to create some sort of deal that, you know, whatever it looks like, because we want to say that, you know, we declared victory and we're going home and we just focus on this power sharing deal in the absence of any trust building. The likely result of that, which tends to happen in these kind of conflicts where you just have a peace deal, but no trust underpinning it, is it'll collapse in a very short period of time and Afghanistan will reach a new level of, of conflict. On the other side, if we are in a hurry and just you know, want to be done with it and we just decide we're going to pull the plug and withdraw, I call that withdraw to civil war. So the United States leaves. Uh, there's incentive for both the Taliban and the Afghan government just kind of wait, try to wait um, to slow roll this peace process. And if we get frustrated and just leave, again, you're probably looking at a new level of conflict in Afghanistan. Um, if we have a hurry, if, if we have patience, but we stop paying attention, then we're likely in a throwing good money after bad scenario where we just keep 8,600,000 000 or 5,000 soldiers on the ground. We keep enabling this conflict to go on for years and years at, at a cost currently of about $40 billion a year. The United States could buy a billion coronavirus vaccines for the cost of what we do in Afghanistan every year. We could, we could fund hundreds of miles of roads and scores of, and, and fix a whole lot of bridges in America for $40 billion each year. The, the best case is where the US keeps a lot of attention on this peace process and has some strategic patience. I call that slow and steady wins the race, where um, there is a very deliberate process of building trust and confidence between the sides. Um, and those trust building measures eventually lead to reductions in violence and a ceasefire. And then finally, a, a durable political settlement in which Afghanistan is at peace with itself and its neighbors. It's not a platform for international terrorism and, and there's respect for international human rights. So I have one more question before I turn it over to our audience for Q&A, which I have to ask because I know it's on the minds of just about everybody who's watching this. Chris, what was your 
reaction to the Atlantic article uh, with the report that the president refers to those killed in combat as losers and suckers? It, um, I found it to be appalling and I'm not making a political statement one way or another. I, I found that terminology and the reference and, and I'm not making a judgment on whether the president said it or he didn't. But the, the idea that people who have put their lives on the line for our safety and well-being are suckers or losers, I mean, it, it's, it's appalling. It grates on me. As I thought about it more, I also thought, and again, I'm not making a judgment on whether it was said or not said, um, but it's, in some ways, it's a cruder form of some of the snobbery that we hear about, well, nobody would join the military unless you know, they were too poor and had no other options or um, <clears throat> were failing at life and you know, they, they can't get a job and so that, that's why they joined the military. You hear that all the time from a different part of the political spectrum. What the president is alleged to have said is just a cruder form of that. Um, it's statistically not true that uh, only the lower, you know, sort of ends of the economic, um, people who are on the lower ends of the economic rungs join the military or those with no other options or those who are, you know, escaping, um, you know, prison or sentences or anything like that. I mean, it's just, first of all, it's just not true statistically, but I think there is, you know, there's, um, there is a, there's some commonality between those two, the suckers and losers sentiment and the, well, you only join the military if you got no other options sentiment. Yeah. Okay. Um, Patricia. Well, that over was to, over to your, our guest. Thank you so much, both of you. That was um, an incredible, especially that last question. That was quite something. But um, what an amazing experience you had in Afghanistan and with the Taliban. I'm really amazed by that. But we do have a question from Judy Miller. Do you want to, from um, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, New York Times reported before and now with uh, Fox? Uh, hi, Chris. Thank you very, very much for this really moving presentation. I wish I'd been embedded in one of your units <laughs> in Afghanistan, but I have uh, two uh, questions, actually two and a half. One, do you think that the Taliban really does want to share power in, with, at this point uh, with the Afghan government, or is this just a kind of you know, we'll negotiate and go on killing uh, them and Americans uh, until you leave, until we leave. Two, um, uh, what level of troops do we need there to provide the leverage that you've referred to? Because the president is talking about pulling out everybody. Um, and three, uh, Pakistan, what do they want? And can they wreck these talks? Thank you. Judy, those are great comments. I think we actually met at the Naval War College in <laughs> yeah, 2001. A thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's wonderful to see you again. Thanks for those, thanks for those questions. Um, <clears throat> I, I believe that the Taliban are sincere in wanting to find a political settlement to this conflict. At the same time, I believe that they 
as they've gotten more and more leverage, of course, their appetite gets a bit bigger. And whereas, I mean, in 2011, for them to talk to the Afghan government, they wanted, they, they wanted a few simple things. Hey, I want to open a political office in Doha. Um, I want to uh, get our diplomats off the sanctions list. And I want you know, these five senior leaders in Guantanamo to, uh, to be released. And if you do those things, hey, we'll agree to talk to the Afghan government. I mean, <laughs> what we wound up with last February was we'll agree to talk to the Afghan government if you release 5,000 prisoners, the Afghan government releases 5,000 prisoners, and the United States agrees to withdraw within a period of 14 months. And we agreed to that. We were in a position, and I credit Ambassador Khalilzad with having the fortitude to work through this process and, and to come to an agreement. Um, and I'm not gonna Monday morning quarterback that, but I mean, that's just the, the difference. That's the difference that nine years makes. Um, so their appetite has gotten much bigger. The Taliban have always wanted political hegemony in Afghanistan. At the same time, they, and they're very clear on this, say, look, um, when we were in power in 1996 to 2001, we were cut off from the international community. And, you know, we were incompetent to govern. I mean, I'm almost giving you direct quotations from them. Uh, we were not competent to govern. We didn't have any money. And so we couldn't do anything. The only thing they did well were things like the virtue and vice squads, right? Where if somebody was violating what they considered to be law, they would take them out and, and, and beat them or throw them in jail. They would execute women in the soccer stadiums. They blew up the Buddha statues. And of course they hosted Al Qaeda who agreed to give them money. Now Al Qaeda was there before the Taliban came to power, but nonetheless, um, this is, so from their standpoint, they say, this is the situation we found ourselves in and we don't want that situation again. So they say, when we come back to power, um, also a direct quote, when we come back to power, we want to have good relations with the international community because we don't want to find ourselves in that situation again. The second thing that they'll say is, look, um, they, they will blame, they blame the situation that they found, they found themselves in for the last 20 years on Al-Qaeda. Uh, and, and so there's not a lot of love between those organizations. Um, oftentimes Al-Qaeda, mainly Gulf Arabs and Wahhabi Muslims, Taliban, Afghan, Deobandi, Hanafi Muslims, as, as you well know. And Al-Qaeda can kind of look down their nose at the Taliban and they don't particularly like it, but it's, a, it's an alliance of convenience at this point. So do I think it's realistic that the Taliban will cut ties with Al-Qaeda and prevent them from going into Afghanistan? I, I do, I think it's highly likely that they will um, if, there is a, you know, if there is a durable peace agreement. You can look at the, after the September 11th, or, or not September 11th, the May 1st raid, that ultimately killed Osama bin Laden, that treasure trove of documents included letters from Mullah Omar's secretary to bin Laden and essentially saying, 
hey, thanks, but you really don't have to bother coming back into Afghanistan anymore. So um, I think there's reason to believe that our counterterrorism assurances can be met in a political settlement. Um, I worry about a, a rush to failure and trying to salami slice the Afghan government into some sort of power sharing arrangement without a lot of trust building underneath it. The Afghans tried this in 1992 and 1993 and wound up in an Afghan civil war that had huge amounts of, of, uh, of atrocities and, and lives lost. So that's the last thing I think any of us wanna see. Excellent. Do you have another question, Judy? Just Pakistan. Oh, oh, oh yes, Pakistan. that's yes. what I thought. Thank you. Um, one of Pakistan's biggest concerns, and I know we've got some uh, we've got some folks from Afghanistan on the on the call, and um, they they won't like hearing this. One of Pakistan's biggest concerns has been that Afghanistan and India are going to team up to dismantle the Pakistani state, and now, most of us, Afghans will say, not realistic. Indians say, we got no interest in doing that. Us Americans say, come on, really? Um, you know, nobody's going to do that. But from their point of view, that's what they see. And when they hear people talking about, um, you know, Afghanistan, you know, restoring the, you know, Afghan land and... Uh, Afghanistan getting very close to India, it, it stokes up these fears. So I think ultimately there is going to have to be a reconciliation, if you will, between Afghanistan and Pakistan, where they create an arrangement that allows them to live together peacefully and for, Af for Pakistan not to believe that Afghanistan wants to dismantle it um, and for Afghans to believe that Pakistan is no longer conducting malign activity and stirring up conflict in Afghanistan, which they have done and very successfully. And, you know, as have other, other actors in the region used Afghanistan as, uh, you know, kind of stirring, stirring the pot there and, and pitting Afghans against one another. So there's tons of resentment on both sides. Both sides have um, reasons to be resentful. And I think that's a whole nother facet of this peace process is, is this Afghanistan and its neighbors. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We've got uh, Stan Cohen. Do you have a question? I do. And I'm okay. Yes. Um, <clears throat> you said early on that 95% of the people we were trying to help were trying to kill us. So I guess the first question, and I do have a quick series, the first question is who is the enemy uh, and how do you resolve a government, the Afghan government versus the Taliban government being where is the best source of government and why do we care and why with the problems we've, that have come to the fore at home, why are we the ones to tell them how to do it right? One last question. Okay. Please, what's the problem? If we see something wrong, we can go and invade again. But why do we need to be there? Sorry for No, thanks. Uh, thanks, Dan, for those, for those questions. 
Yeah, what, what I found in 2000, the summer of 2007 was that 95% of the people in the area that we thought we were trying to help were trying to kill us. I found that by the summer of 2008, late summer 2008, 15 months later, that, that things were very different there in, in that particular corner of Afghanistan. Um, in, in many places in Afghanistan, the United States is, is very popular especially in those areas that have seen a lot of U.S. support. In other parts of Afghanistan, the United States is not very popular at all. I was in a, at a conference in Herat, which is a big, beautiful city in Western Afghanistan a couple of years ago. And the only country less popular than, and this was right after, but the only country less popular than Pakistan, according to some of the people who were speaking, was the United States, which you know, is, um, is frustrating. It's like no good deed goes unpunished. Um, but at the same time, we've done things to that. We have done things that have frustrated a lot of Afghans that we need to learn from. Um, I personally believe that Afghanistan needs to find a, a governance solution that's right for Afghanistan. Um, right now, it is one of the most, and it has been since 2007, among the top three. I think only one time it came out of the top three, and then it was in number seven most corrupt countries in the world. Um, Afghanistan has, its government became a kleptocracy. And, and, and as a result, it was burning legitimacy in the eyes of Afghans faster than, faster than international community. A lot of good Afghans wanted to build it. Not every Afghan official is, is involved in the kleptocracy, but enough are. Uh, you've got a lot of people in Afghanistan in the government absolutely trying to do the right thing. Uh, trying to create good governance. You've got a lot of warlords in Afghanistan who are used to getting filthy rich off the conflict. Um, and then you've got the Taliban who have, in some ways, a different point of view about governance. And, and so Afghans are going to have to find a way to, um, you know, to, to come to a governance solution. And so I worry about the rush to failure, the rush to get a deal, and just to carve up the government among competing interests because it's just going to result in a wider conflict. So I think the United States needs to buckle in a bit and um, support a peace process that goes through these important confidence building stages, reduction of violence stages, and, and ultimately to a political settlement. You know, we do have, uh, I really appreciate your candor. It's, it's, it's really important for us to hear it. Um, but we do have somebody with us today, David Roller, who was... Um, <laughs> A young lieutenant um, at the time of your um, action in Afghanistan, who um, I guess Jake Tapper ruminated that he thought American people cared more about Paris Hilton um, at the time of, of, of all of your courage and bravery than what you all were doing in Afghanistan. So we want to give a shout out to, to David. Um, can, I, can I say something real quick about David? Please. <laughs> I love this. I love Dave. Um, on that, on that battle that I mentioned, July 27th of 2007, where a group about five times the size of, of what B Troop had on the ground, um, attacked. And, and of course they, most of our soldiers were on the valley floor on the road because they were going to, they were just coming from a village where they, um, uh, were meeting with them. 
and, and the insurgents were up on a high ground. This is a mountain. You imagine uh, if you did a V like this with your arms, that's what the terrain looked like with us on the bottom and the insurgents on the top. And there was one, one platoon that was in exactly the right spot. And that was David Roller's platoon. Uh, they were up on the high ground. They had gone there the night before. Uh, Tom Bosick, you know, placed them perfectly. Dave found exactly the right spot to be in. And as this insurgent group tried to essentially close the door on, on this ambush, it was Dave and his 18 soldiers that fought them off for hours, bringing in airstrikes, soldiers fighting valiantly. Um, Dave was the, one of the people I could talk to on the ground because uh, Tom was in the valley floor and Dave was essentially my lifeline um, into what was going on there. And, um, and despite the chaos all around him, you know, Dave's soldiers continued taking the fight to the enemy. They fought valiantly. Um, Dave like just coordinated the direct fire from his soldiers, bringing in um, medevacs uh, for a wounded soldier, uh, coordinating airstrikes, um, Apache strikes, and it was it was just an extraordinary um, example of combat leadership. Dave was awarded the Bronze Star for Valor um, for that, and and when when you read the outpost, um, and you read that part of. You know, it's, it's kind of in four sections, our units, the second section of the outpost. I mean, it's people like David Roller and, you know, you read about Joey Hutto and Alex Newsom and, and so many others that, I mean, just kind of figured this out and, and, and did such an extraordinary job of it that, I mean, you had all these Afghans stop fighting. And so when you see that part in the outpost, um, you know, where the Afghans are, are doing that. That's, I mean, that's, that's Dave Roller and that's Joey Hutto and that's Alex Newsom and others who, who created that kind of outcome. And I just hope people read the book and can just sort of experience what, um, I mean, what kind of people we have in uniform in folks like Dave Roller. Well, on that note, I can't think of a, a better note to end it on. I can't thank you enough, Jay Johnson, for bringing these heroes to us to tell truth about what they went through, what they have done for this country. Um, thank you so much, Jay. Um, any parting words for us? For And thank you, Chris. I hope I, I saw the movie. I haven't read the book. I can't wait to read your book. Um, and I, we didn't get to all the questions, but thank you. Thank you both so much. And thank you, David Roller. Jay, your last word. The only thing I have to say to Chris and his, his buddies from the Army who served in Afghanistan who are listening, thank you for your service.